Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hi, and welcome to New Books in German Studies, part of the New Books Network podcast. My name is Chris Wojtek from St. Xavier University, and today I'm here with Robbie Aitken and Eve Rosenhoff. Robbie and Eve are the authors of Black Germany, The Making and Unmaking of a Diaspora Community, 1884 to 1960. Hello there, this is Chris Wojtek from New Books in German Studies. I'm here today with Robbie Aitken and Eve Rosenhaft, the authors of Black Germany, The Making and Unmaking of a Diaspora Community, 1884 to 1960. Hi, Robbie and Eve. Hi there. Hi. Thank you so much for being here today. Um, and I was, uh, well, I'd like, I'd like to start by hearing a little bit about yourself. Robbie, maybe you could start for us. Sure. Uh, thanks very much for giving us the chance to speak to you. Um, I am indeed Robbie Aiken. Uh, I am a reader in Imperial History at Sheffield Hellam uh, University. Uh, I've been working in Sheffield for about the past five years. Prior to that, I was working together with Eve uh, at the University of Liverpool. I guess you could call me an historian of the Black Diaspora, although I kind of fell into that role. Uh, previously, I was interested in German colonialism, uh, German Southwest Africa, and I carried out a research project looking at concepts of blackness and whiteness, what did it mean to be white in the German colony? What did it mean to be black? Once I finished that, I was uh, living an exciting life in Berlin. And uh, Eve asked me if I wanted to do some poking around to the archives about a bigger project looking at black Germans. And so I spent, I think, every second day or so uh, going into the archives to see what I could find, being excited by what I could find. And, and together we kind of developed this more longer term project. It's been great because I've really enjoyed it and it's given me an opportunity also to inform my teaching. So a lot of the material that we used that went towards the book, uh, kind of primary materials, are things I've thrown into teaching with my students. And if ever there is a critical audience, it is certainly students. So they have definitely (laughs) helped inform my teaching and helped inform bits and pieces within the book. Awesome. Uh, I'm Scottish, I should probably say, uh, because I know sometimes my students do not know. (laughs) <laughs> I do not work out where my accent comes from. So, um, yeah, that's me, uh, um, a cultural historian who looks at um, the Black Diaspora. Cool. Thank you. Uh, Eve? Hi, uh, and thank you from me as well for inviting us to talk to you. Uh, my accent might be a little, little bit difficult to locate because I am not Scottish, but I am American. I was born in New York. I did my BA in Canada, but then I went to Britain to do my PhD. So um, I have one foot on each side of the Atlantic, what's left of each side of the Atlantic these days. I'm now a professor of uh, German historical studies at the University of Liverpool. And I started off as a labor historian. My first research was on the history of the... German Communist Party, and then like a lot of labor historians in the 1980s, I became uh, much more interested in gender history, and um, in a sense, both of those interests fed into the project that became the book, Black Germany, because um, in fact, the motivation, the, the beginning of my interest in, in, in black Germans was a study of the anti-racist campaigns of the Communist International, where wow. I found some black Germans being political activists and began to wonder what it meant for someone who was black and German to be involved in a movement that was essentially advocating the rights of African Americans. So that's kind of the, the core of, of my research interest that's that fed into this book. I've also been doing research more recently on, uh, on the history, the early history of financial practices, but we might come back to that later. 
Well, thank you. Um, so you're actually, you seem to be coming at it from very, from different places. You met, I'm actually curious a little bit about your collaboration. Um, Robbie, you were at Liverpool and that's how you started working together. Yeah. I guess, Eve, how did you know that Robbie would be a good person to work with on this project? Um, how did that come about? <laughs> ah. <laughs> okay, who started? <laughs> Robbie um, came to Liverpool to do a PhD about what seems like about a million years ago. Indeed, and, yeah. uh, and he did that, the, the work that he did on, um, on German Southwest Africa was, was that PhD project. So I knew, uh, I knew that he was a, you know, an excellent researcher and interested in the field. In fact, we talked when he... If you'll bear with me, we had a little bit of a technical hiccup there. Um, I had just remarked that their work is not just for students of German history and German studies, um, but that it draws on diaspora studies more broadly, um, that they look at work done on African immigrants to Liverpool, for example, and I wondered if they could speak a little further about their uh, theoretical framework. Uh, and Dr. Rosenhoft was responding to my question. Between the wars, which was kind of where we started. So from that point of view, trying to, to add a new dimension to a field of study that was already pretty well established, um, but didn't have much of a German element to it. Right. And at the same time, to come back to the, the question of finding individuals, that's indeed we started with individuals. I think from the beginning, as, as, as Robbie kind of said along the way, our concern was always starting with a few individuals that we knew quite a lot about, to ask precisely who were these folks. And the only way to, to know who people are is to ask again, who, who are they talking to? Who else is there? Are there networks? Is there a community? And in practice, I remember that when we were applying for the thinking out the project and applying for funding and then uh, reporting back to our funders over the years, which were, of course, always more than they should have been. Right. Um, <laughs> uh, reporting back, we, we, we actually kind of were constantly talking through, okay, what is the conceptual, yeah. the theoretical frame for this? And, and in, when we started the project in um, 2005, we were speaking into the field of the wider field of transnationalism, right. as indeed of diaspora studies. And um, I think we kind of, in the end, we came back to that notion of community, which is already kind of old-fashioned, but I still can't think of any better way to describe what it was we were looking for. And, it, and I found it interesting that in, in, in writing the introduction to the book and in, in trying to explain what we meant by diaspora community, I was reaching back to my social history studies and research of the 1970s and the work on um, black communities in America and on working class communities in Britain to try and find a way of articulating what it was that we had set out to find and that we thought we sort of had found. And that's something um, that I think that the book does really well. You know, you set out to trace these sort of networks and you acknowledge, you know, and you acknowledged in the beginning that it's hard to trace these networks because so much of your sources, so many of your sources were, you know, official sort of documentation and legal allowances to do this or that or to live here. Um, I wonder if you could speak a little bit about um, your sources and what you felt like their advantages were, their disadvantages, sort of how you um, how you operated um, in, the, in that respect. I think to begin with, um, as I suggested, when I was living in Berlin, I was just basically poking about and trying to find everything and anything that I could. So I went through this kind of archival materials that um, earlier researchers had used, such as Katarina Ogentoya or Mayaim, uh, as a basis of looking at these administrative sources to begin with. On these, there were lots and lots of lists of um, addresses of where people lived. So what I did was I then contacted all the local archives uh, for these different places where people lived to ask if they had any more information. In Germany, you had the system where people had to be registered. And mm -hmm. if you had a registration card, then that gave me then more information I could work on uh, for a further basis, 
whether someone was married, what kind of citizenship status they had, who they lived with, whether they moved around. Occasionally you might see things about change in citizenship status or in, time, in terms of maybe having committed a crime or being accused of committing a crime. And that was another way to then find further records, which then provided more information. Beyond that, it was trying to think creatively and, and to try and understand where would these people appear in, let's say, less administrative types of documents. So that's why I started to go through local newspapers, to go through uh, newspapers, uh, performance-based newspapers, such as the artist, um, given that most of the Africans in Germany by the 1920s had become performers. So were they visible there? Uh, I went through oh, endless loads of address books, trying to see if I could find them registered in different places of accommodation, or then going through all sorts of passenger lists to see if they were listed leaving Hamburg to go back to Africa, if there was any sense then to understand who stayed, who left, what kind of numbers we're talking about. To be honest, I felt a bit like a, a magpie picking up everything <laughs> and anything to see what came out in the wash. Um, because as you, as you say, these people were very difficult to actually trace. That said, I think we had a, I had the privilege of having pretty much two years of just being able to research. So I did go to you know, missionary archives in Switzerland. I went to Cameroon. Um, I went to Holland to find information. If you could get all these bits of information, you really could then start asking more questions and looking for more types of information. And even at the end, when we were finishing up the book, you know, I was still getting new documents that I was trying to fit into the book, but just didn't have the time to do so. So there's a real mix and match of information that we tried to piece together to come up with a bigger picture, also including um, you know, uh, oral interviews with people, mm -hmm. all of which have different strengths and weaknesses, these different types of sources. I think balancing them all out, they gave us a, a pretty good picture. Uh, and images were very important because the images could, in, in some ways, tie people to one another. People we thought knew one another, now suddenly we have an image that tells us exactly that they know one another. Um, it was very exciting, I find, looking for, for the different types of documents. Yeah, and if I, I could add to that, I think then the challenge is with these with folks like this who are sometimes described as subaltern subjects is find getting beyond the the simple statistical record or the the simple record of their presence and of course the fact that most of the records are not generated but them by them but by other people and trying to get some access indeed to to the texture of their lives and where possible to their subjectivity. And that's partly about, there's a point where quantity of data becomes quality if you're ready to use your imagination. So, for example, all those passenger records don't just, I mean, they tell us who went where and how often one of our characters, say someone like Martin de Bobbe, crossed. Um, the ocean or, or, or cross borders, but you start putting that together and you picture that person in that situation, what it meant, what it cost, uh, what they had to gain, why they might have been traveling, and sometimes for that you have to speculate, and then you begin to get a picture of the person. And the other thing that was important for me was just the historian's craft of reading deep and reading against the grain. Right. Finding things in the records that um, are the traces of the person, even if they aren't meant to be. So the, um, I mean, my favorite, my favorite example of that was looking at the prison records of um, Alexander Ndoki, the man who was beheaded for, uh, for uh, raping a white woman right. in 1942. And there, those records have been looked at by other people before, but no one looked to see what clothes he was wearing. And um, and just looking through there, I thought, you know, I had I had learned something that I was then able to spin into half a chapter. I mean, you may or may not believe it. <laughs> <laughs> no, well, you, and you talk but, about that in the introduction, right? You talk about sort of the habitus of these, particularly men. Yeah. yeah. 
I wonder if I could uh, ask you a little bit, you know, uh, Robbie, you mentioned Cameroon, that you got to go to Cameroon. Um, you focus on this sort of, and, and you, you move outside that group, but you mostly focus on this group of Cameroonian individuals. Um, can you talk a little bit about why you chose to focus on Cameroon and sort of what, um, you know, what you, uh, why that was, why you chose that focus? Well, the people we, the individuals we started with were Cameroonian. And you could say, again, coming right back to where I started, my handful of Afro-German activists, mm-hmm. they were all Cameroonian born. And, um, and you could say it just happened to be that way, but it didn't because Cameroonians constituted a very significant, numerically a very significant group among those. African colonial subjects who traveled to Germany when Germany still had African colonies. So there are a, there are a lot of them, relatively speaking, and they tended to be from elite families in Cameroon. And in some senses, it seems to me they constituted the kind of articulate group among Afro-Germans. Robby might disagree. <laughs> no, I, I would agree. And I, I think that when I was writing sections of the book, I always had in my mind that I, the Cameroons in many ways were, were quite typical of the colonial migrants. They were statistically the, the largest number, but looking at incidents involving Togolese or people from Tanzania, uh, the situation is very similar. And, and since finishing the book, I have tried to uh, create a database with all the Africans that, I, that we could find in any record who were in Germany uh, pre-1914. And that absolutely doesn't change my mind that statistically this is the most dominant group. I mean, I, I, we have a database of about 1,100 Africans who came to Germany pre-1914 from sub-Saharan Africa, and right about a third of that are, are, are Cameroonians. So statistically, they're, they're by far the biggest group, and they're also very visible. They're visible not just in their political actions, but also in the um, types of employment that they take up in the 1920s when they become stranded. So I think to do do justice to looking at one specific group, I felt very strongly we would have to go to Africa and try and look at the context from which these people came, the customs, the traditions that they brought with them. Uh, And in order to do that, we, we couldn't you know, look at every single different ethnic group that came to Germany. It simply wouldn't have been feasible to go to Liberia, to Togo, to almost all parts of sub-Saharan Africa to try and trace these routes. So strategically, I think we had to to focus on a group, and I think the Cameroonians were uh, clearly the best choice to do that through. Now, yeah, you... I think, and that's important, really, is the sort of the, the strategic aspect of that too. To start with a definable group about whom it is possible to know stuff. And then watch what happens to them when they're in the German context yeah. and the way then their networks move out from immediate family to wider group of Cameroonians to the wider group of uh, colonial Africans to other blacks in Germany. And then indeed within context of political movements to an envisioned global black community. Now you talked a little bit, (laughs) that's what, yeah, that's what's tricky about this three way uh, conversation. Um, You mentioned, uh, well, both of you mentioned sort of where they're coming from in Cameroon. um, And, you know, I think it was Eve, you said something about how a lot of these um, immigrants are coming from elite uh, populations within Cameroon. Can you talk a little bit about sort of where most of these people are coming from class-wise, what their motivation is in immigrating, sort of what the what what the, what their arrival is like then in that respect? I think Robbie should talk about that because he did most of the work on the sure. kind of on African Cameron? end. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I, I would say to begin with, the, the, the vast majority of um, the Cameroonians who are coming to Germany are coming from Douala. They're coming from the coastal port city, which... Uh, had a long established relationship with European traders. Um, so this is a population that was in many ways cosmopolitan. It already had a tradition whereby local elites would send children to Europe to be educated, to gain in political and strategic terms 
so, for example, the Bell family, which is one of the key Cameroonian uh, key Douala families, had already sent children to be educated in England in the 1860s. So when it become when Cameroon becomes a formalized German colony, they just continue this tradition, and now they're sending their children to to Germany instead. So a, a fairly significant number of um, the Cameroonians, the Douala, who end up in Germany pre-1914 have been sent for educational purposes, to learn German, to learn a bit about German society, to gain skills that they can then put to use when they return uh, to the colony. In addition to that, you've got other people with, with all sorts of different types of motivations who might participate in the likes of uh, human zoos, which was an opportunity for them to travel. Uh, these would often be professional performers whose motivation for being in a zoo could range from all sorts of things. They might come to make political protests. They might come to try and create economic uh, partnerships in Germany. So human zoos was also another real form of, of travel. In addition, there are many youngsters who come as servants. It was very much an unknown number. It was, it was incredibly difficult to find traces of personal servants within um, the official archival records. But these two could be people who come from the Douala elites. So um, traditional leaders would hand over sons to traders, to colonial administrators, in order that they uh, serve these people and also to cement the relationship between the elite and um, the, the colonizing uh, German population. What you see is that the vast majority then of the migrants we're talking about are young, they are men, and they are coming for more, um, let's say, transient reasons. These are not people who are anticipating staying in Germany, nor the German authorities anticipating that they will. Stay. The German authorities are happy to, I wouldn't go far as to say promote, but at least to support this migration, this movement of the Douala elite to Germany as long as it serves their purposes. So the purpose of um, instilling these youngsters with German ideals and with training them up to potentially serve um, either in workshops such as tailors or smiths, or within lower levels of the colonial administration. With time, it becomes clear that exposing them to German society, where they might come into contact with ideas of social democracy, equality, etc., then life becomes a bit more tricky, and the authorities start imposing migration restrictions. But you do see an, an expansion of this movement beyond the Douala elite as the German colonial period progresses. And you get other grassland leaders, um, Elites from further in Cameroon also sending their children to be educated in Germany as a, as a ways and means of gaining political influence within the colonial structure. There are very, very few women who make it over to Germany. And they typically come either as part of a human zoo, or we did find, I think, three, four girls who were sent to be educated, primarily because their, their fathers didn't have any first sons to begin with. So there's a whole range of motivations that might bring people to uh, to Germany, but it's a it's more I'd say of a, of a voluntary migration as opposed to a, a forced migration. Now, oh, you... definitely, and I and I yeah. No. Oh no, I'm sorry. Go Carry ahead. On. Go ahead. No, I was just going to say I think it's um, as German historians, of course, we focus on 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 the German case, and I think as as, as Robbie said. The prehistory of uh, German colonization was one where, well, on both the east and the west coast of Africa, those populations, like the Douala, but also in um, in German East Africa, was now Tanzania. Those people had been interacting and trading with white Europeans for generations, and that's not again peculiar of, the, of what would become the German colonies. And the pattern, then, if we think of it in those terms, and the, the pattern in the German colonial period is very like what's happening in other European colonial yeah. mm -hmm. empires. The, 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 the travel of elite Africans to Europe is actually pretty normal. And then what's abnormal in the German case is the way that that's shut off. Yeah. Right. Uh, I think much of what... Much of what we said about the Cameroonians, you, you could apply to, to the Togolese elite who are doing exactly the same thing as he suggested. Mm. 
Now, I'd you... also add that, yeah, indeed, there are women, and they're very interesting, and there are a couple where I, I still want to find out some more about. <laughs> <laughs> well, that was, I, well, that's your, yeah, you need to write that book next, because I would like to read that book as well. <laughs> um, I actually wanted to ask about the, um, you know, the, the fact that some, that these men are, are that, well, that these immigrants are men, um, uh, that is typical of uh, migration patterns, but then we see this mixed population um, start to emerge as these men who get married then marry white German women. Um, can you t- speak a little bit about the the sort of formation of this larger mixed community? That was a very interesting um, part of the research process, I think. I think we realized rather late on that we needed to know more about these women who were the wives of, of the Africans who... Um, who we had known by name for years, but hadn't really yeah. thought about, you know, they're part of the story. <laughs> we did some some rather last minute research to find out about them, and and that partly with the view of understanding, was self almost self evident that the that the relatively in their relatively small numbers, these African men would find partners among the white population. But to understand how, in terms of you know, how they how they met their partners, um, what kinds of challenges they faced, and so on, that took a little bit more research. Um, we certainly, when we're learning, Robbie just recently found some more information about one of our one of our central characters who we we first met as someone who was trying to get married, then discovered yeah. that he never married the woman he was trying to get married to in 1900, but did marry someone else. Oh. Then we discovered that he'd had a, another wife. Now we've, we've found four wives for the same. Oh, my. <laughs> the same yeah. gentleman. Um, these were <laughs> clearly men who uh, wanted to settle down and, uh, and must have, many of them must have been very charming and attractive indeed. But the history then becomes, um, this is where the, the, the Holocaust story comes in really. I mean, the, these, the, the, the marriages that were formed before or shortly after the First World War um, meant that children were born in, certainly in, in Germany's major cities and in, in, in other parts of, of Germany born to these, to these couples who counted as mixed race who, to a very considerable extent, I think were settled in their respective communities, but um, who were absolutely and explicitly targeted by, uh, by the Nazi regime when, uh, after Hitler came to power. Now, you mentioned earlier um, that some of these people, and if I could just back up in time slightly, a lot of these people get sort of stranded in Germany after Germany loses the First World War, right? And they have it sort of closes things off for them. Um, yeah. Can you speak a little bit about that? Sure. I think when, when war breaks out, obviously shipping back and forth between uh, Germany and, and Africa ends. And then when the war is over, by that time, Germany is effectively on the ground, lost all its colonies. And then in a legal sense, with the Versailles settlement, they politically lose and effectively lose all their colonies entirely. So for these men, primarily men who are from the former German colonies um, and who want to return home, not only do they have to deal with the German authorities, moreover, they really have to deal with the inheritor authorities of Germany's former territories. This would be largely in the first place France, which has taken over uh, Cameroon, or most of Cameroon and uh, Togo, but also the British have taken over um, former German East Africa, so Tanzania, parts of uh, Burundi and Rwanda, and a, a very small strip of, uh, of Cameroon. The French and the British are, are not particularly keen on having these men return. They um, hold a belief, likely false, that these individuals have been Germanized and would likely um, spread pro-German propaganda were they ever to return back to Africa. And there's an extra, I guess, element when it comes to the Douala because 
the city of Douala, which the French have now taken over, is seen as a real place of subversion. And they have real problems trying to implement French control over Douala. So they're doubly keen not, allow, not to allow these Germanized Douala to return uh, and potentially spread um, pro-German propaganda and stir up all sorts of problems within um, their new mandate states. So they're in a very difficult position when it comes to wanting to return home. I think we probably both suggest that the vast majority of these Africans um, become German-based Africans by accident rather than design. This is not their plan. Mm-hmm. The intention was to return home, but now the, the possibilities are, are close to them. But then they settled in Germany, but they're no longer German subjects. They're actually Indeed, yeah. subjects of the French or British state of a kind when the French or British states are prepared to acknowledge them. And, um, and that puts them in a very difficult position from the point of view of their eligibility for, for welfare. Certainly they have, if any of them had citizens, well, very few of them had citizenship and none of them, for very well, one or two of them after 1919, they're able to, to acquire it, but it becomes ever more difficult. Um, and it also they're means, tolerated well, it means by the Germans. Pardon? They're, they're tolerated by, by the Germans yeah, indeed, yeah. uh, on the basis of colonial revisionist hopes that the uh, that sections of uh, of the German authorities have. Uh, yeah, that I, I found that especially interesting, actually. Um, well, and the other difficulty, right, for them in, in going back to Africa is those that have these mixed families, and there's this sort of yeah. what happens to those people? The white wife problem. Right, exactly. And that's, what, that's that, that they're, they're, yeah, they're regarded as often as dangerous for political reasons because they're German, but they're dangerous by definition because they have white wives and mixed-race children and the the presence of that kind of family in the colonies is in itself a threat to political order because it's a threat to the color line. And that happens... That's the case in all of the uh, European colonial empires, irrespective of the of the the national, you know, irrespective of, yeah. of, of the question of whether this returnee is politically reliable. Uh, neither the the French nor the British colonial authorities wanted to see mixed couples on the you know, on the territory of the colonies. And from that point of view, the experience of our people made very clear, I think, the, um, the way in which circumstances in the colonies or the, the terms of colonial rule differ from, but also feed back into metropolitan culture in terms of, of, of racial politics. In the colonies, the color line is absolute because the key thing is to maintain dominance over the black population. In Europe, it's negotiable, but it's precisely at those moments of, of potential mobility that the question is opened for both, whether the question that's settled in the colonies is opened up for, for the metropole. Now, some of these, yeah, no, that does. And I actually, I actually, um, I wanted to ask too about, um, I'm, I'm also interested in this, well, the white woman problem, broadly speaking, but you Mm. also, you speak about some women, um, who are sort of elite women and are able to kind of, uh, mediate between European and African cultures in a, in a positive way, um, in some sense, sort of manage this, this, uh, Disjuncture. Could you speak a little bit about that? I'm thinking of um, Maria um, and Desi Bell, for example. Yeah, yeah. She's uh, she's an amazing character, and she she's one of those um, uh, Cameroonian Douala women mm. who did herself travel to Germany to be educated. Um, she was so much so close to the 
ruling elite in Douala that she was the fiance of the secretary to the Douala leader who was executed in 1914 for rebellion. So she was um, educated. She was a member of the elite. She returned from Germany after spending a good bit of time with missionaries and partly, I think, under under observation and protection because of her political connections. And um, she made her career there principally through uh, her second marriage, which was not to a Cameroonian, but to a, um, a Senegalese. And the fact that he was Senegalese meant that he had a form of citizenship in the French Empire, and that meant that the two of them could travel freely. And she ended up settling in Paris and becoming the focus of a um, the sort of social the salonniere for the um, the Pan African movement that was de- developing in Paris already during the Second World War and then afterwards. And she was, she's certainly someone of whom you can say that, I mean, for one thing, she, she makes, she constitutes this aesthetically wonderful link between our, our little band of Afro-Germans and global black consciousness as it emerges in, in Paris in, in the 1950s. But she's also an example of, of, of a woman um, who had developed these cosmopolitan skills and really was able to move physically and intellectually between um, the capitals of the, the colonial and, and, and the metropolitan capitals. And she did that pretty much by careful management, although she always claimed to be just a little woman. <laughs> That's always very disarming. Um, <laughs> what, and, you know, you talk about, you talk about how she's um, sort of, uh, in Paris for the beginning of this development of this sort of Pan-Africanism. Um, and that's actually one of the, what you really focus on in the second half of the book is the development of this diaspora consciousness. Can you talk a little bit about the sh- sort of the shift uh, for Afro-Germans between thinking of themselves in terms of making local connections into thinking more like a diaspora? Well, we see them... We see them being, but the, that the, the sort of the key moment there is is when really I suppose where the project started when they are 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 drawn into um, the international communist movement in the late twenties um, when international communism is turning its attention to an already existing global anti colonial movement and attempting to, um, to uh, if you like, to take that over, to operationalize it. But in doing so, places the question of racism and colonialism on a world agenda. And to some extent, you could say they reach out and, yeah. um, and, and, and begin to organize our Afro-Germans. But there's a prehistory to that which I think Robbie's about to. Well, actually, no, I was going to say more that to an extent, the diaspora is reaching towards them. So mm. if you take the connections that they established towards African-Americans, which appear to be quite fleeting, but um, intense for a very short moment in time. You have uh, African-American newspaper reporters coming to, to visit Germany in the late 1920s, um, such as uh, Russell Abbott, uh, J. Rogers, and they are actively looking to try and make contact to black European groups. And one of the groups that they stumble upon are these black Germans. Uh, and these African-American newspapers were then, for me, I thought a really good opportunity to see a different take on the lives of African Germans. So you've got the diaspora and the former African-Americans reaching out towards them, but you also have uh, African activists in Paris actively trying to reach out towards um, black diasporic groups within Europe. So Timoko Garanquete was one of the key figures that we found who was active in Paris. 
who was uh, on the, the left-leaning side of, of politics, who is also trying to establish connection to other groups. And one of the ones that he connects to are, are um, the African Germans who are based uh, in, in Berlin. So they're being pulled into networks, I think, rather than necessarily wow. reaching out themselves to become involved. Mm-hmm. So we also see them earlier on, so in the immediate aftermath of the First World War. Yeah. They're forming, um, well, they form a, a mutual welfare association, the Afrikanische Hilfsverein. And there's also a movement to petition the, um, the Constitutional Convention, the Weimar Assembly, that's drafting the Constitution for the New Republic. And in both those contexts, there's, I mean, they, they, they give a strong appearance of, appearance of being rather inward-looking. You know, we're looking after ourselves, we're looking after our families, we're interested in the situation of Cameroon. But there's, a, there's, a, there's beginnings of an address, I think, to the, the notion of an interest of all black people, certainly in Germany. And yeah. Um, yeah. that's a kind of space into which a vision of, of a wider global community um, can, can, can enter, I think. And I suppose that's one of the, the challenges with, with the project and with this kind of research more generally, that what we see is um, the big guys, the, 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 um, the African-American press, mm-hmm. the, um, the organized French um, League for, um, for the Defense of, of, of um, of the black race and then the league for the defense of the Negro race. And then the common turn all sort of reaching out and reaching in and picking up these, um, these, these, these black Germans. Uh, I think we need to presume and at least as a hypothesis that they're reaching out too. Mm-hmm. Um, though all we, you know, as, as with, with, with so much of the project, or we see it, we see the one-way traffic. Um, the uh, is a, they make they do openly protest, or at least one of them openly protests. Louis Brody yeah. in 1922 protests against the, uh, the the propaganda about the black scandal on the Rhine, and that particular protest is framed in terms of us black Germans. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. But again, it's a, it's a political intervention that that well that indicates certainly that they're paying attention to what's going on in the world. And I think that's probably also helped by the performance networks that they become involved in. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Because yeah. by the twenties, many of them are touring artists, whether it be in circuses, whether it be in theaters, mm-hmm. they are coming into contact with African Americans, uh, other members of the diaspora. I, mean, I think for me, one of the, the incredible things was looking at um, the biography of, of Joseph Billet, who was, again, from the Douala elite, but who performed on the stage in Vienna with Josephine Baker, performed the stage in Berlin with Paul Robeson, and then went to Moscow uh, alongside Jomo Kenyatta to be trained uh, by the Comintern. So uh, it's a bit like Maria Mandesibel. These are incredible life stories, and it's amazing to see who these people are actually networked to and what they're involved in. That's right, yeah, and when you see, yeah, and, and as you said at the beginning, you know, talking about pictures, when you can see people, you can see an Afro-German standing next to an outspoken African-American, you know they were talking to each other. Right, yeah. Even if they weren't in the same party. If they were at the same party, <laughs> that means something, even if they weren't in the same party. Now, you don't end on... National Socialism. You ended 1960, but the Nazi era is definitely something that very much impacts these people. Um, can you speak to that a little bit? Well, I think our reading, well, in thinking about the the chronology, and we, you know, we hadn't. I think we didn't originally intend to to say much about the Holocaust. Although I remember one of the one of the reviews of our of our grant application said, "Oh yes, this Holocaust was a very sad story, but there's not really much to say about it." But in the event, I think we see the Holocaust as actually closing off that ending, that first uh, diaspora community. And that's why we call it the first community. Mm -hmm. Simply because because there were 
very few left. There were relatively few were still there at the point where the, the Holocaust arrived, or where it, you know, Second World War, the, when Hitler came to power. Um, not all survived the war, and many, perhaps I think more than we know for certain, who survived had been sterilized of that second generation. And the the key. I mean, what's meaningful about that is not simply that it happened, but precisely that we can see national socialism as a backlash against the loss of the colonies and against those the bodies of those people who represented the lost colonies and who insisted on living on and having children of you know, biracial children. And those biracial children are the physical and the symbolic um, reproach mm-hmm. to the German racist colonialist program. And so from that point of view, you know, there's a kind of, it's not just that the Holocaust happened to these people, but there's a really organic link between their history and the way it was brought to an end, or the way the history of that community was brought to an end. And I think that was partly what what I felt was was lacking in the literature on black people during the Holocaust up until that time period. It was when I, I remember when we were talking about writing the book, I thought this would be the easiest chapter to write, but I think in effect it was probably the most difficult one to write, because finding archival material, tracing what happened to individuals was exceptionally difficult. Most of the main um, administrative files end of right about 1940, when we have this very ambiguous picture of having the uh, Deutsche Afrika show, the German Afrika show, as this part vaudeville circus type enclosure for black Germans, where they are protected from the worst of the Nazi extremes. But through looking at then Holocaust reparations claims post-1945, a slightly different picture began to emerge. And, and certainly to my mind, I think we, we'd both agree that there was increasingly a genocidal intent in Nazi uh, policy towards black Germans, that there was absolutely a logic to what was taking place and that it wasn't ambiguous. And in many ways, I felt, I feel that the, the Africa show was, was pretty much a red herring in the ways of looking at Nazi policy towards, towards these people. Okay. Um, yeah, I, oh, sorry, go ahead, Eve. <laughs> no, no, no. I was, there was something else in my mind, but it's gone now. You can edit that. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, I, I actually, um, so I've taken a point a bit of your time and I really, I really appreciate it. Um, I'd like to know sort of where do you go from here? What are, what are either of you working on? Are you continuing with any of the same sort of themes or, or source material that you used in black Germany? Um, you know, what's next? Okay. Well, I'll, I'll start. Um, there's still a few loose ends that I would like to follow up if I have time. And I think, one of the things I think you can say about our book is that we did our best to be comprehensive and the best we did was to show where the, that there's lots of room for more research. Um, but more specifically, in in the area of black studies, I have two things on the go right now. One is that I've just translated the memoirs of Theodor Michel, who's the last, probably the last survivor of that second generation. Uh, they were published in German a couple of years ago, and my translation should be coming out pretty soon, which I'm excited about. Yeah, that sounds very interesting. Book. Yeah. Yeah, and I think it'll be really useful for people to get an inside view of the kinds of things that, that we've been writing about. Um, but I'm also combining my interest in black studies and my interest in 18th century financial practices by looking at... Um, the involvement of continental European states, and particularly the German states, in the slave trade. I've, uh, I'm not sure that that's going to be a major research project, but I've just uh, a book that I've edited has just come out, and I think that's a, a really um, it's a new field of research just developing with really fascinating implications. Cool. So that's me for the cool. For the How about you, Robbie? What are you working on? Well, I think after 13 years of following the lives of these people, it's very, very difficult to, to give it up and not to continue searching for new stuff. 
so partly in response to Black Journey, I, I wrote an article uh, called A Transient Presence, which was trying to hammer down some of the statistical information that we could find. So what kind of numbers were we talking about pre-1914? Can we say something about where people came, migration patterns, etc.? So that was partly an offshoot of, of drawing together all our material and then just picking out all the single people that we could, we could find. Um, in addition to that, I've been working on a website with some friends and colleagues in the United States called Black Central Europe, whereby we are um, uploading lots of primary documents, translating them into uh, English from the German, that are about the lives of some of these people and uh, gives a much wider insight into um, Black diaspora that's developing in, uh, in Central Europe, starting really from... Um, the Middle Ages and going all the way up to the present day. So that is something that I think it's pretty exciting. I'm going to use it with my students, and I think there's lots of opportunity for people to use it for a research basis. And we're hoping to launch that officially in the next couple of months or so. In addition, I've been working uh, on an exhibition. We find so many incredible pictures as part of, um, of this research project. And I still find even more and more uh, incredible pictures. And I'd like very much to try and reach out beyond the narrow confines of academia to try and share some of this research. Uh, so I'm, I have created a prototype traveling exhibition. I'm going to try and extend that and hopefully try and take it to some places, uh, particularly Germany, but uh, I'd very much like it to, to take it to Cameroon. So at the moment, it's more of these kind of outreach um, type of projects that I'm involved in, but we collected so an unbelievable amount of information that there are so many odds and ends to try and tie up. And the one aspect that I think when we were finishing off the book that we were still getting more and more information about were these Holocaust reparations claims. Uh, and I'm hoping to look at those and to try and think about um, black victimhood, the relationship between black people and the Holocaust, colonial amnesia, all these kind of things. So that's the, the short-term project that I'm working on. Very cool. Uh, very cool. Uh, well, thank you guys uh, so much again. Um, this is Chris Foytek, and I'm here with Robbie Aitken and Eve Rosenhaft talking about their book, Black Germany, The Making and Unmaking of a Diaspora Community, 1884 to 1960. Thank you so much, both of you. Thank, thank you. you. You've been listening to an interview with Robbie Aitken and Eve Rosenhaft, authors of Black Germany, The Making and Unmaking of a Diaspora Community, 1884 to 1960 on the New Books in German Studies podcast. You can download other interviews with scholars of German studies on iTunes or at newbooksnetwork.com under category People and Places German Studies. Thank you for listening.